And here we are. Hello. Welcome to RPG R&D. It is our, what is this, our third, fourth? <laughs> I can't count. <laughs> we had the horror show in between, so now I'm all messed up. Yeah, don't don't count those. This is uh, for the, the, the main show, not for the, the fun <laughs> right. little side show. Uh, my name is Jess Geyer, and I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell, and our special guest co-host, Jason. Jason, how do you pronounce your last name? I've never said your last There's name out loud. There's three pronunciations, depending <laughs> on who you are. <clears throat> I can say it very French. Um, I was trained, <laughs> I, I grew up with uh, Petri. The actual pronunciation is Petr. Oh, you're Very gonna do few one. People can pronounce that rolling R. You're gonna pull so one I of those. Say, <laughs> I just say Pitt like Brad Pitt. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome and thanks for joining us. Do you want to give yourself a little bit of an introduction? Certainly. Um, I'm brand new on the scene. Uh, just started designing. No. Um, <laughs> I've. Uh, I have been in the industry since 2009, approximately. Um, I started a little press, started working on my first game. And uh, as of eight days ago, I just incorporated, which is oh, kind of hella congrats. cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, uh, I run Genesis of Legend Publishing, Inc., um and i have well some of the most recent and well-known games that i've worked on include uh after the war which is a uh science fiction uh role-playing game of mimetic horror uh that i co-authored with alistair stewart there is sig city of blades which just went on kickstarter and funded quite well which is uh, planar fantasy meets Blades in the Dark. So if you want to literally break into the vault of heaven to steal immortality, you can do that. <laughs> Hooray! A dethroned <laughs> god, as the meme goes. <laughs> yep. Um, I totally need to just make a dethroned god adventure, because... Um, and uh, the other one that I've done recently has been... Uh, a, a little game called now I, I tried never to pronounce it verbally because everyone says it's um, there's also multiple pronunciations for this one uh, palanquin or palanquin or palanquin depending on where you're coming from the thing that you, that people haul around a rich noble on that thing yeah um, I know what you're talking about <laughs> um <laughs> The curse of being someone who learned words by reading them, not by speaking. Um, yes, the, as I'm certain we are all experienced with. I am. I am quite familiar with the flaming brazier. Yep, <laughs> described so often in D and D adventures, or the rouge. <laughs> yes, or the rouge, um, and all of their trap springing ability. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that brazier. one is. So that one is a about a princess uh, who's fleeing a palace coup with the help of unlikely rescuers who are unsavory adults. And this is it. The framing story is that this is her recounting the story of her escape 
to her aunt after she's safely escaped. And before she passes judgment on uh, her escorting, uh, the, the adults <laughs> who escorted her, because she's trying to choose between if she uh, trusts them or fears them. Ah. Interesting. I, I like that narrative device. Yeah, it, it's it also, it's a perfect safety mechanism. Because the princess makes it. Definitionally. Sure. Gotta get out of um, there. <laughs> so yeah, that's who I, oh, and I also run the RPG Design Panel Cast, uh, which is uh, going to be restarting up soon. I just need to grab some of the Metatopia audio and then I'll be good to go. Uh, I also run the uh, Game Design Lounge, which is a weekly video call of various game designers uh, and publishers where we effectively it's just a Zoom call that people join up in. Um, and it's staggered intentionally so that one of them works for everyone except Europe. One works for everyone except Asia, Oceania, and one works for everyone except North America. So that way, you always get two out of the three major geographic areas of the world able to participate. Because time zones are terrible. Yeah, that's really good considering how many people are like spread out in the RPG scene everywhere. See, this is why we need a flat earth. Where we could just have the sun above and it's the same time for everybody. Um, yeah. Honestly, you know what my personal <laughs> preference is? Uh, the entire world just goes on UTC. And we stop having time zones. Yeah, we, I mean, it would still affect some people, us. Yeah, well, no, but the thing is, some, it, like, okay, in London, uh, that is now, they work a nine to five. In New York City, uh, you wind up working a, uh, that's what, a 12 to 20. We're, we, uh, th that's never going to happen. I'm, I'm really <laughs> sorry to tell you, Jason, but you're never going to convince a third of the world to have their day at night. <laughs> oh, it's not day. It's just like. 1300 hours in some places <laughs> that's the morning some places that's at night but if night you say we're meeting brain. at 1300 hours yeah that's everyone I, meets i don't i don't think it's gonna work <laughs> oh my brain but uh, any, any, anyway anyway okay. anyway anyway what, what, what is our is, time zone podcast about that's how eve online works that's, that's how actually how eve online works yeah but they're they're still like working on the like they're they're not my, my brain is entire, melting. They they coordinate entire wars using that. I'm like, yeah, no, that that's the way of the future. Um, you know that's, what? That's a whole that's a whole other podcast. Like, <laughs> speaking podcast. of coordinating and planning, uh, Craig, our first topic is about planning a campaign. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I've done a I've done a lot of planning. I feel like I'm always planning a campaign. A lot of GMs always are, right? Even if you're not, don't have immediate plans to run the campaign. 
yeah. you're, getting, you're getting something ready. You're like, you're brainstorming ideas, you're jotting stuff down. It's like every time I, I look something up, I, I get an idea for a campaign idea, something going on in my head. Um, always, yes. Do you have any big campaigns on the docket, Jason? Uh, 2020 has done a great job of messing that up. Um, uh, honestly, a good portion of it is uh, I spend so much time designing games that I don't have enough time playing them or running them. Uh, but it's also that I've been running convention games where I'm running 12 games in a day or something ludicrous like that. Uh, you know, well, uh, no, usually it's uh, six two-hour games at Gen Con. Um, so that burns you out pretty fierce. Yep. Yeah, I spend most of my Gen Con GMing, which is, I mean, that I like running one-shots, but... I, I really, really, really do like planning campaigns, like campaigns thinking of the, lovely. the overarching story and and the know. character growth. That's the real uh, character growth, both in terms of PCs and NPCs. Mm -hmm. um, there we go. Here we go. Topic time. Um, great. So okay. So real quick. Um, <clears throat> When you're planning your campaign, start with the town, the you know the little area, and work your way out. That's the first piece of advice anybody's going to ever tell you. Don't don't design the world. Um, but then, uh, like, just as far as like just other things to approach for campaigns, Jason, go ahead with like you know thinking about where NPCs so, might go. Uh, so, the fundamental tool that I use that I learned out of terrible experience um, was. Find the NPCs who are the glue that tie the PCs together. Uh, this is derived uh, in part from the old um, uh, PC, NPC, PC triangle of Apocalypse World. Um, you find the characters who have at least a solid reason for interacting with two different PCs so that then... You can actually have the uh, the PC equivalent of a Bechdel test of, uh, you know, are there two PCs talking about something other than a PC? Uh, you know, <laughs> are there two PCs talking about an NPC is a good sign that you actually got role playing going on. Sure. And then <laughs> NPCs are your voice as a GM. They're the primary tool you use to interact with the players. So having a cast of um, characters that are hooked into the setting and hooked into the player player characters um, that you can use to pull and nudge and move the story around and evolve those characters as you play. Once you have that, I mean, I have honestly run games where I say, you're in a desert uh, city. Fantastic. Now here's your five NPCs and that's all I need because I can just pull on the NPCs and the world building falls out of them. That's, I mean, it's really such an easy way to build off of your NPCs by, by, by trying to figure out how your PCs are going to interact with them. And I specifically ask my players like, okay, what in your background, like who do you have ties to? Like, do you have family? Where'd you come from? Who's your, sorry, I'm gesticulating with my knitting needle. I got to put that down. <laughs> um, 
and I, I take elements from their background and see where I can fit things in thematically with the general kind of story I want to tell, which we, you know, we would have figured out during our, our session zero. And this is stuff that you can start building with your players during that session zero too. Um, my most recent, gosh, it's been a whole year because it's been like a whole year since I've been able to game in person now. Um, when we started our new campaign for my regular game, we all went over to our GM's house, we sat down and we talked about the kinds of characters we wanted to do. And then we talked about how our characters might already know each other. And that allowed with our GM just kind of sitting there giving suggestions sometimes allowed him to take notes and use our backgrounds later to hook us like built in hooks within your campaign to pull us through the, the planned adventure, which we got two adventures into before everything broke down. Um, but yeah, I mean, I building from the town, that is perfect. I'm going to offer up because I know that this happens plenty. I'm going to offer up like if you generate an NPC that has, let's say, traits X, Y, and Z that are somehow hooked into the setting, the town, um, and, and the, the PCs in some way, um, and you don't get it, you know, in this, this NPC, you don't get to necessarily uh, introduce immediately. Um, you don't have to fall in love with them, fall in love with what they can do. For the campaign because at some point the piece the players may decide that this other npc that you whipped up on a whim who you expected to be a one-off they suddenly are really interested in so you take traits x y and z and you shift them over to this character and now all of a sudden they have like this this npc that they love right out of the gate because they just as a group decided they love this NPC and now you have all sorts of fun things to do with that NPC. And you can do that with like anything you plan for. Um, if the character, you know, if you decide you've got like this, like interesting location and the characters, you know, you give them a sandbox where they can go anywhere and you can't, you just can't nudge them to that location where you've got cool stuff planned. They go somewhere else, take that thing that you spent the time planning and now it's over there in those caves or it's up, you know, it's up there on that mountaintop. Uh, the quantum ogre. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, yes, it is a time, here in the castle. <laughs> it, it, it is a tried and tested uh, technique. Um, now, the thing that I like doing is I set up something that is big and messy and will impact the setting, and then I figure out exactly how it's going to impact each of the NPCs, mm-hmm. and then I just go from there. Someone uh, just had um, uh, their bar burned down uh, by these punks wearing red masks. And then someone else uh, found a red mask in their kid's bedroom. (laughs) Okay, we got a red mask problem here. (laughs) Um, So that's how... I'm feeling that. So that way, (laughs) no matter what, effectively... As player characters, their options are we walk around asking for rumors. Odds are that one of the people you know will talk to you. Or you talk to one of the people you know, and they'll talk to you. Um, or you run off into the wilderness, and then it just gets even more juicy as things go cataclysmically bad for the people you know back home. I mean, it's win-win. Yeah, a lot of people are really afraid of railroading their players, so they kind of just let them do kind of whatever they want. But 
not railroading your players doesn't mean they can't face consequences for not following a very clear plot hook or not following up on leads. That is that so, is one yeah. way you can kind of save your campaign from being quote unquote derailed too and making sure that your planning isn't going to waste. Yeah, I try not to. So uh, this is a thing that was particularly well expressed in a particular uh, PBTA fantasy game that I'm not even going to mention anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the idea of effectively here is a clock that's um, ticking down in the background. And it's just a thing in the world. In the absence of PC interaction, this will happen. Mm-hmm. And then all you do is you just set those up. And it, you you demonstrate how that clock ticking down uh, manifests in the setting. And if they choose to ignore a, prob- a problem, well, it's going to be a bigger problem. That's it. They get to choose how they're handling it. Maybe they want to let the, the red mask cultists uh, continue to run wild. Okay, good for them. Uh, that is their choice. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's my general approach. Hold on, I think that we lost yeah. Craig. Wouldn't be able to hear you. It's, um, while, while you're getting your, uh, camera back up. Oh, good. Oh, there you are. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> good. I was worried for a second, because also my, my internet started, um, being a little shaky. So everybody's um, going. Everybody, everybody with the podcast version later, we, you're going to enjoy like a little weird thing that just happened there. <laughs> because I'm probably not going to edit that out. Anyway, <laughs> continue where you are. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, having that timer, having that counting down clock, also gives you while you're planning a campaign a timeline for how long essentially something is going to take because you don't want your campaign to run forever. Campaign burnout is a real thing. Everyone wants to get to the end of their story. Um, but like you talk to like nine times out of 10, you'll talk to a GM who says, like, yeah, I had this great campaign, but then we never finished it. Uh, you want to try to get to that ending point sooner rather than later. You don't want to dilly dally around too much and giving yourself you know, that the steps to get you and your players to the end of the story is also important. So that also means, though, that you need to figure out what is the end point? What are the players trying to do? Are they trying to save the princess? Are they trying to destroy the the evil of the world? Are they trying to, uh, I don't know. Graduate high school. Graduate high school. That's perfect. (laughs) Yes. Um, Having that end point. so one of the other techniques that I use that is um, it's probably idiosyncratic. I don't know if anyone else does this, but I, as I'm preparing, I effectively wind up coming up with specific vignettes. Just like here's, uh, you know, 10 seconds worth of film if this was a, a movie. Uh, and those are the anchors that I hang everything off of. Because I know that at a certain point, uh, you're going to walk into this large warehouse where a possessed uh, boy um, by an ancient uh, demon 
um, looks at you um, as if they were an, an owl and just stares at you imperiously. Even though they're, they're like a 12-year-old kid, uh, that demon's 1,200 years, and you don't want to mess with it. And, you know, it's echoing, there's a faint uh, musty smell, and everything takes on a sense of grandeur in this empty hall where a creepy kid is sitting on a throne. I, um, I actually do I things. Have... I do things exactly like that, yeah. where I plan big moments. Like here's a moment that I want to use to wow the wow the players to create a cliffhanger, to create a you know a moment to create to jo- to draw to drop jaws um, on the floor. Um, and just I don't know. Like okay, at some point I'm going to just as an example, I'm going to there's a building is going to explode and it's going to kill an NPC that the characters care about. That might happen in the third session. That might happen in the next to last session. But I'm going to have that in the back of my head right from the beginning of the campaign. And I'm going to pay attention to those NPCs that the characters care about. And as the story progresses and different things happen, I'm going to be like, okay, well, which NPC would the characters really hate to lose? Which What's the one that's going to get the emotional reaction out of the players? And how can I put them in a position to die in an explosion? Um, um, or... Uh, 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 potentially, like if if uh, and it depends, you know, like you you've played in the moment, but like you can also take that later and turn it into, um, like the characters actually, uh, you know, the players have a chance to stop that from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you've set it up, like you had the idea of like I'm gonna I'm gonna endanger an NPC, um, that they care about, right from the get go, and just find your way to it at some point rather than planning for it like okay this is going to happen in episode eight and it has to be because x y and z happens you can't necessarily plan for that you can always twist that um you can always pull the um uh civil war uh trick i think is it civil war or ultron i I always mix those two up um but the here's a vision of a terrible thing that's going to happen in the future but it's kind of got using dream logic. So it may or may not happen like this. Sure. Uh, Cap's broken shield. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's a particularly useful way of, like, if you aren't actually going to burn down the building, that's a way you can still use the burning down a building with someone you, you love. That's, and that's true. Put it in a nightmare. Yeah, Fantastic. just put it put it in a vision, put it in, you know, a, a spell or um yeah, and if, then if, it's, if it's a sci-fi you... if it's a sci-fi game, they're looking through a portal in time or whatever, you know, like yep. yeah. Yeah, my because, one of my favorite yep. characters I ever played, her whole power was premonition, and my mm. GM ended up building every investigation we did. We'd start off with my character having a vision. The first time it happened, I was like, what the heck is happening? Because he made all the other players um, play characters in the vision. Um, And that would have little plot hooks built in. It would do a good job of freaking me out as a player. And it was one of those vignettes that he could plan ahead of time and make really cool and atmospheric and give everyone a job. Um, If you are not a good improviser, I really like the idea. Um, I've never, I don't really plan my campaigns like that, but um, I like the idea of planning those vignettes, which might make you feel more uncomfortable if you're more of a planner. 
um, without having to methodically micromanage everything that you're doing within your campaign, which you don't want to do. No one should do that. It's going to burn you out. Um, and another related thing, um, this is actually the uh, Mountain Witch trick, which is pretty much you just ask specific leading questions and then use those as the foundations, foundation stones that you lay. Um, so um, why haven't you spoken with your mother in two years? You get that, you jot down the answer, and now you've got, oh, you haven't spoken with your mother, and uh, you uh, were, um, are desperate to get this promotion. Well, guess who's on the hiring committee? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I find just... Here's a question. I don't have to improvise on the moment what, uh, how I'm going to use this, but I'm getting raw data and I'm getting ingredients that later on in my downtime, I'll be able to mix and use to create an actual plot that is directly tied into what they're interested in and reincorporating existing things. Mm -hmm. And that makes it better for the players who players want to feel like they have agency within a story. And if you're not giving them any agency within a story, just write a book instead, because that's what you're doing to them. That's, I mean, I know that's a pretty strong opinion. And, you know, there are some people who like to do pre-made adventures where every detail's filled out, but those campaigns aren't very long lasting for the most part. I mean, maybe you'll find a group that really likes that kind of stuff, but I think that that's pretty rare nowadays. Um, you wanna you want to make sure that they, they have some say in the matter and that's what keeps them coming back to the table. Yeah, so you can use things that people, that the, that the players are developing during session zero or when they're discussing, discussing character creation or whatever, and just use that to prepare some ideas, have some little encapsulated bubbled things that are ready to go um you know that you can use at some point later in the campaign like this is like campaign planning versus session planning because session planning is much more immediate you're thinking about what the characters are about to do like right now um but i think for session uh for for campaign planning um there's a lot of little stuff that you can do rather than getting too caught up in uh you know big broad sweeping um you know, world changing things and, and, and very specific things. Yeah. So I, go ahead. Um, the, there's actually an interesting um, bit that came out of my scientific education, which is um, panarchy, which is everything rules everything. And one of the key elements to it is there is uh, small, fast cycles, medium, moderate cycles, and big slow cycles. Uh, so um, let's say capitalism, the theme of capitalism as a thing in society, that's a big thing. Uh, and it's gonna move slowly and it's very hard to disrupt this big thing. Uh, is Joe going to lose his job? Is a very small thing and it's very easy to mess with. Plan the big and moderate and improvise the small. Uh, because you can't come up with every detail, every quick, um, if the PCs walk down this road, they've uh, broken the timeline. 
Like you, you, you can't do that. But you can plan. Uh, you know, the gates to hell are opening, and in five seasons, the Hellgate will open. Yeah, that that's easy. Um, the mayor's trying to turn into a giant steak. Also easy. <laughs> um, for those of you who enjoy Buffy. See, there's a thing too. I was going to say, don't be afraid to borrow from literature and from TV shows and movies either. If this is your first campaign that you're ever planning, you don't have to, don't feel the pressure to make everything brand new. It's okay to rely on tropes. Tropes are tropes for a reason. And you might find that, you know, your players will come up with a more interesting thing later and you can just pretend it was your idea all along. Um, but using those tropes and planning via a kind of you know, a three act structure where you have the beginning where the players are just starting to learn what the problem is. And then you'll have, eventually you'll reach a turning point where like once they cross this line, there's no going back. They have to make it to the finish line. And then you have your your big climax and exposition, uh, ex not exposition, denouement at the very end. You want that structure too. Just what, what you learned in English class, use that and don't be afraid to make, <laughs> make hell open up in season five. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, on a related note, I love the that that fun technique of I'd like you players to go brainstorm what this what these mysterious things might be. Ooh, I like option two. That's real now. Um, <laughs> that's a that great technique. Uh, because. Wow, someone found like someone found a chair, some rope, and a bag of road salt. What does that I mean? I have no idea what this is, but they'll come up with theories. Yeah. And some of the theories that they come up with are absolutely nonsense. Don't feel like you have to let them lose <laughs> come up with <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but sometimes you'll get something like, ah, oh, wow. I like that and I think it fits and I'm just gonna say yeah because if it makes sense with their logic then it will make sense if you make that the reality and I'm yeah I, that's my well, number then one it's 80% right and they miss 20% mm -hmm. yeah and you come up with the twist there you go <laughs> what a pile of advice now go plan your campaign Oh, I want to go plan a campaign right now. <laughs> I'm actually in the midst of doing exactly that. I'm starting something up next week. Um, so, shifting gears. Mm -hmm. um, we've got three um, designers, uh, RPG designers here, who uh, we're going to talk a little bit about. Last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, we talked about um, utilizing an existing system um, and how you can work from that to design your game. But now we're going to talk about like things to keep in mind. We don't. This is this is a very broad topic. It's something that could take many episodes to discuss in depth. But we'll we'll hit on some broad, um, you know, kind of sweeping com uh, concepts about designing a game and and designing the mechanics your, yourself, like creating the mechanics for the game yourself. Um. So, um, who wants to start? <laughs> like just like what are some of the things you try to keep in mind when you when you look to design a system yeah that's a thing that is a big <laughs> thing um and if and if nobody has a, play, a point to start i have a point to start um 
the bedrock that I use is what is your game about? Write a one sentence mission statement about your game. I just told, told people about it. After the War is a mimetic science fiction horror role-playing game. Everything ties into it is mimetic horror. It is a, you know, a brain-twisting space virus that uh, destroyed uh, a, a giant uh, happy federation of uh, aliens. I have something that I can always go back to whenever I'm wondering which should I go route uh, route A or route B. Um, I have uh, a similar uh, kind of things to look at. Uh, I, I tend to, and th these don't always come up immediately. Um, I don't think about all of these right out of the gate, but they all get addressed. I think about all of them at some point, and sometimes they change, um, which is what starting with what is the game about? Um, what do the characters do? What is the world like? What play experience do I want the players to have? And then how can the system support those four things? Um, and I just actually had this discussion with some people on my Discord. And I, like describing Die Laughing. Die Laughing is about um, characters dying in a horror comedy movie. You're playing characters that are going to die in a horror comedy. What do the characters do? They die. They do, they do horror movie things and then they die in funny and entertaining ways. Um, what is the world like? It's whatever you want it to be, but it probably fits the horror trope world. Um, what play experience do I want the players to have? I want the players to want to kill their characters. Um, and I want, and then what, what, what can I do with the system to support that is I developed specifically a system that is like literally you have a dice pool that will decrease as you go. It is a countdown to your character's death. And the dice only do two things. When you roll your dice, they determine how your character does in the scene, like kind of what happens. Is it good or is it bad for them in the scene? And the dice roll puts somebody closer to death. Um, and so the whole game is built around, you know, that kind of basic idea of like, we're going to chat. And this is, this is a simple example. Like, you know, it's a, it's a very simple game, but there's more complexities to, you know, to bigger, more robust games. But, um, I think you can, you can keep those things in mind and just kind of build toward those things and find, um, and then like as an, uh, just an attachment to all of that is if there's something that your characters never do in your game if your game is not about that thing you don't need a system to do that you don't need a system to do everything in a game if you're designing a game that no characters are going to die that's not the point of the game the characters don't die they do other things but they never die you don't need hit points or something like that you don't need something that counts down whether or not the characters are alive there's no point to have that mechanic. You're just you're 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 wasting brain power that you could be putting toward, um, you know, whatever it is the the game is actually about. Yeah, I think that that is 100% spot on. I would definitely start from thinking about it from the player's point of view. What do you want the players to be able to do? That is the number one important thing. And the more you can tie that into what your game is about, the best games happen when you meld the themes of the game with the mechanics of the game. So when when you can marry those things together, you get a really fun experience. Um, obviously there's never going to be like a one-to-one -one thing, but 
Like it's so much more fun to play a game where you're all witches and you're playing with the tarot deck than it is to play when you're all witches and you're rolling dice. It it there's just something about it. Um, and there there are so many ways to go about that uh, depending on you know what exactly it is you want people to get out of the game. Uh, Craig, you shouldn't like saying that it's a very simple game. Even really simple games can have some some neat things going on with them and it's really not about how how complicated something is if people people take a look at like DD and they see these rule books that are super thick and they think oh my game has to be like that too that's not true you exactly what you said you don't need mechanics for everything don't include mechanics for things that don't matter for your game don't mistake simplicity for elegance you can have a very simple game that doesn't have a lot of rules to it and have it be very elegant and have it do exactly what the game needs it to do. Exactly. Uh, so one of the other tools that I use is um, I, I call it the four structures. Uh, every game is consisting of a system, a setting, a situation, and a subtext. So uh, that's a lot of S's, sorry. Uh, but system, the rules and procedures of play. Setting, the fictional context of play. Situation, the reason that the characters are acting. And subtext, how the game relates to real world concerns. If you go down and you actually nail those four things down and you pay attention to each of these four elements, um, then you have a really strong foundation to run off. Um, and it also means that you get to avoid certain landmines of, for instance, not noticing certain tropes that you're reinforcing in, say, your race rules or your gender ability modifiers. There's subtext there that you didn't pay attention to. Not having, not paying attention to having a system that robustly reflects the fiction that you've got. I'm looking at you, GURPS. Sorry, not GURPS, so riffs. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, just call yeah. them out, what? <laughs> um, uh, or a situation where there's no reason for the players, player characters to ever interact with each other. Mm-hmm. I... Or a setting that there's just no setting. It's just a you're in a white void. Um, unless you're playing the good place, that won't work. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, I use system, setting, situation, and subtext. And even just ha- writing one sentence about each of those can give you some kind of direction. If you go back to um, our December 11th episode, we talk a lot about like what is your... No, sorry, no, our November 27th episode, we talked about what is your game about, like finding that out and like having that gives you that solid base, all those four things. I like that you put it with the, um, the four S's like that. Um, and having some kind of cohesion too within your mechanics, I think is important. Uh, you don't want to do too much. Like one of the things I don't like about D&D is that I have to use so many dice for different things. I personally prefer systems where 
like I can reuse the same mechanic a couple times. I don't have to dig through a rule book to find a specific little rule. The more you can condense it for me, I know some people like really crunchy games, but the more you can condense it, the better um, play can go. But maybe again, you want to have a really crunchy game that's more um, simulacra of life rather than um, simple. Uh, that's a decision you have to make as the designer. Uh, it's interesting that you brought that up too, and I was smiling as Jason was talking too. We in that previous episode we talked about like the what is your game about, and then what is your game really about? Mm-hmm. That subtext um, there, which is the subtext that Jason was hitting on. Like you know, Monster Hearts is about one thing, but it's really about something else. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of games that are like that, and um, you know, you may not, and you you actually may not discover what your game is really about and how you can make the mechanics reflect that until partway into the system, into the, the developing the system and examining all of this. You might some a, a number of these things that we've been talking about. You might not figure out, or you might have to change as as things develop. You might suddenly realize, oh, this is like I didn't realize certain things about the caper system until I was sitting down with play testers and I saw how they reacted to flipping cards and counting cards and whether, you know, and keeping track of cards. And is that a, is that a, um, I would, for, as example, I was worried that some players would find that to be a bug that would be like, I'm not good at counting cards. Other players are. So I feel I'm at a disadvantage. Um, and I was overwhelmed by player, by play testers saying, no, that is absolutely a feature of the game. Because even if you aren't very good at counting cards, you, the players are all working together. So the person sitting next to you is saying, keep flipping cards, keep flipping cards. You've got a lot of face cards. Yeah, I and that's we're going to talk about that uh, two weeks from now. We're going to talk about playtesting and how that can help you hone your game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I want to play that game. <laughs> I can't say that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I forget what I was um, going to say, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> uh, so there was actually a really good question on Twitter from Jay Dragon, which was, how do people actually design new games from <laughs> scratch instead of hacking something existing? Yeah, Jay Dragon, who wrote Wander Home. Um, so the I it, it forced me to actually sit down and... Um, figure out what I actually do. I figure out what are the main sections of play that are distinct from each other. So for instance, here's the dynamic scenes and then here's the quiet introspective interludes. Or in uh, Blades in the Dark style, here's free role-playing, here's uh, your uh, downtime, and here's your mission figure out what those big distinct experiences of play are. Um, odds are you're going to have at least two, two different styles. Uh, even if it's all we're in the dungeon, we're in the wilderness, we're in town shopping. I mean, those are three different kinds of modes. You don't have to worry about how much money you've got when you're in the middle of the dungeon. You usually don't have to worry about your hit points when you're in the middle of town. So, Figuring out what those are and then figuring out what are the key kinds of uh, jargon time uh, currency that are flowing between these phases. 
So using the standard D&D example, um, when you are in town, you are spending coin to get items and equipment and information. Then you're going into a dungeon. You're spending your hit points, uh, your equipment and information to get more coins. So it's, and then you, so it's a, money's going one way, damage is going the opposite way, and (laughs) you're trying to keep this, uh, keep juggling this. That's effectively the dynamic in play there. Some, some games and some designers will refer to that as the game loop. Yep. Where you start, you start with one thing, then your characters go do this, then they do this, then they do this, and then they're back to that thing that they started with. And, and the and, game just kind of yeah. rotates that. And all you have to do is look at, you've already established what your mission statement is. You already know what the core themes are. Um, all you have to do is sit down and say, okay, what are the currencies that are moving here? A good example. Uh, one of my games, uh, Fate of the Galaxy, which is currently in playtesting, is a game about galactic space opera politics. And you're all, you know, huge leaders of humanity on a fringe world. When you go out and do these big fleet scenes, driving your spaceships or your uh, galactic uh, consortiums, when you are hurt, it's actually hurting your relationships back home. Because it means that you're spend, you're putting yourself at risk, you're spending more time away from them. And then you have to go, go back home and mend fences. Uh, you have to uh, go to your kid's soccer practice, space soccer practice, um, <laughs> to mend your relationship with her. Um, because that's the consequence of you going out and saving the universe. You're degrading, you're sacrificing something personal. So it's all about the price and the sacrifices of leadership that's one of those big mission statement elements that i had so i made a currency that reflects that yeah and i would say too the more you can make your mechanics parallel within those two realms the easier it is for the people playing your game to recognize that and use that to their advantage because your ultimate goal as a game designer is not to to impress other game designers with how fancy your mechanics are or how new and creative they are, but to give your players a good experience. So I, I, I like that idea a lot too. And then the next step is you take each of those big sections and you zoom in. So you zoom into, here's the town mechanics. Are there any current, are there subsections of town? Okay, what are the currencies that are moving between these subsections of town? Once you have that done, and you know, you don't have to know the numbers. You just have to know the arrows. Um, once you have those arrows in place, then you have something really solid as a skeleton that you can put flesh upon uh, and unleash upon the world. And I would say like one more thing here before we kind of move on to our potpourri section is, is to not be afraid to try out new things. You are like any writer or any creator, you're 
you're going to need to practice and do short things and take notes and you're going to have ideas that don't work out. Uh, I was in a, I was like at a talk with Alyssa Teague who designed um, Geek Out, which is a really fun, simple party game. And she said that she had a notebook where anytime she gets an idea for either a mechanic or for one of those, like a story or subtext or, or like what a game is about, she puts them in a notebook. And then every once in a while, she'll find something that matches up and she'll use that. Um, and there are lots of designers out there who hold game jams and they do mini games and things that are not super serious. They're just kind of ways to, to test out mechanics, um, to test out different things. That's what I did to get my start. Um, me and me and my partner, Alex, we just did a bunch of mini games to try stuff out, things that we wanted to experiment with. There's no reason you have to make something huge your first time ever doing a game. In fact, don't do that. <laughs> do something small first and 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 try it out before you um, try to make the next D&D heartbreaker. I think uh, we're going to move on in just a moment, but I think mm -hmm. maybe uh, just as we're planning for um, what we're going to do after this initial eight episodes is like maybe an episode at some point where people where we have listeners um, or viewers uh, suggest like what's a way to do like this sort of thing in a, with a brand new mechanic um, with a, with an invented mechanic as opposed to hacking a system. Um, I would love that. And we, cause we didn't really get into actually like design, you know, like, okay, well you're going to roll this many dice and it's going to be like this. Da, 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 da. Um, it was more of an overview. I think that at some point we'll, we'll address like actually like generating mechanics, like specific things like saying these dice, these cards, this, this coin, this rock, paper, scissors, whatever it is. Um, but we'll get to that eventually. I would absolutely <laughs> love that. That would be a lot. Of, I, we definitely need to put that on our list. And just brainstorm. And dice games are so fun. <laughs> like the, some of the things that you can do with dice uh, specifically are real neat. And it's there's so much room for development there. Um, so if it's fun, literally just playing with the dice and even ignoring the fiction in front of you then people will really want to play the game. Yeah, it's true. Because <laughs> it's fun. I'm rolling 3d6. And if I get this right thing, then awesome things happen. It explodes and I get to roll more dice and it's great. And they make the little sound when you roll them. <laughs> it, for this move, you have to stack your d6s on top of each other into a tower. Um, yeah. Like, on, a on a piece of paper and then you have to yank that piece of paper yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> Without the tower falling. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, our, our potpourri section, um, Jason has suggested a topic for us. And I um, I, I know the root word of <laughs> xenobiologist. Uh, I, I have watched the movie Aliens. Um, but uh, xenobiology, what? What? Explain. <laughs> Tell us okay. about the xenobiology, Jason. Um. <laughs> So within pretty much any academic discipline, there is the geeky uh, creative side of it that spins off. You have um, constructed languages, conlang. Um, of course, they made their own subword out of it because they're <laughs> constructed linguists. Um, you have uh, people who will make uh, fantasy maps because they like making maps. Uh, 
I mean, writers and sociologists and psychologists will do all sorts of things. Um, this is the biology equivalent. So um, this is the idea that um, biology on Earth is weird and wacky and super interesting. I mean, have you looked at a platypus re recently? <laughs> Imagine how it is when you go further out and you look at alien planets. What are some of the neat speculative things you could do? And how would these things fit together? So here's an example. Uh, there is a kind of fungus that's eat, that eats radiation. It literally gains power off of nuclear radiation. Do you know what they're planning on doing with that real world fungus that exists? They're planning on putting it in the walls of spaceships to capture uh, cosmic rays to protect astronauts. That's so tight. That's right <laughs> <as> hell. <laughs> yes. Dude, yes. Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of fiction that does this particularly well. Um, I have a lot of story critiques for Avatar, the Blue People movie. Um, I have just all critiques for the other Avatar movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Blue People movie, there's a lot of problems there. But if you watch that movie, you will note that all of the animal creatures there come in pairs. They share certain characteristics, and there's always two different species that share certain traits in common. There's the uh, little pterodactyls and the big dragon. There's the uh, little dog things and the big, like, huge dire wolf thing. Uh, you've got the little lemurs and the Navi. And they share a bunch of physiology. And you can see, wait a second. If this was real world, I could extrapolate out that you've probably got, like, three or four other of these that exist and we see how these ones work so who eats the lemurs <laughs> uh, it, it, there's got to be something that eats the lemurs and then what is how do the lemurs protect themselves from whatever eats them so you get a sense of the dynamics of how all the creatures interact and then you get all the fun speculative weirdness in play. Um, so there's a, uh, in one of the later books of The Expanse, they go to an alien planet and they have a xenobiologist who's on there, who's cataloging the local species. And there's this like lizard thing. And when it, when it tries to eat something, what it does is it effectively expels its stomach around the thing. Yeah, I've seen that. And then just eats it and then sucks it in. <laughs> that's how it eats. I'm like, yes, that's perfectly valid. There's spiders that do similar kind of stuff. Okay. That's neat. Um, so xenobiologists are uh, people who do this kind of thing and make up eco 
ecosystems for fun. Hi. I am I like so into this. Okay, real quick, I want to read this comment from the chat because it freaks me out and I love it. Um, it's from Game Biologist. FYI, white pine trees have a symbiotic relationship with a fungus that lets them kill and eat insects. Yes, the Michigan State tree is semi-carnivorous. <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, there's also a number of plants that when they're injured, they release pheromones that tell the predator or the parasite of the thing that normally eats them, hey, your dinner's ready. So That's uh, like the happening, but more real. <laughs> it's like... It's a situation of a mouse going, hey, a snake's coming me. Hawk, hawk, dinner's here. Eat, eat, here, here, here. There's a snake. Uh, like, yes. Well, it, that's also kind of like toxoplasmosis, which, um, you know, lives and breeds in cats, but it infects mice. I can't remember how that works, but like, there's like this triangle yep. relationship between that and mice and cats. Like, yep. <laughs> One of the things that gets me the most about um, the idea is of, of xenobiology and, and what might exist and what you can imagine. Um, and, you know, eventually some biologist will actually try to make um, is the, just the, 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 this, the idea that we as human beings look around our planet and we see each other and we see all the different types of animals that, you know, you can learn about on the planet and you say, okay, I, I recognize all these different types of things. I don't necessarily know what that is, but I get like, that's okay. That's like a worm kind of thing. And that's a thing that's got four legs and fur. Um, and we, we understand all of this stuff that if we were to actually travel to another planet that had life on it, if we were to actually encounter an alien species, it is entirely possible, given the sheer infinity of variety possible in the universe, that we wouldn't even recognize it as a living being. Because it would be so different from our own frames of reference. Uh, we would probably recognize it in the same sense that we recognize as viruses. As we think they're kind of alive, maybe. They don't hit everything on the checklist, so we're arguing about it. But we think it's alive. Maybe. Right, right. But at the same time, we could travel. <laughs> we could travel into the stars and come across a a star, let's say, yes, a burning ball of gas, and never realize that that thing is intelligent and looking at us and studying us right now. Because the idea that. of a burning ball of gas that is a living thing is just not in our scope of understanding. That's eldritch horror. I don't like it. <laughs> um, but just it, so you know, like. And, and that's yeah exactly like it's like but but even even Lovecraft and Eldritch Horror is confined to our understanding of like oh it's slimy and it's got tentacles and it's really big and it slips in sideways through a dimension and all that stuff like we may not have even imagined the physical form that something can take on like nobody on this planet has even thought of it yeah and I, we I and like, we and we could have already encountered it I like the idea of like crystal creatures and things like that. I've looked into stuff like like the crystalline beings and um so can I just barf forth xenobiology at you? <laughs> I, I am ready. Uh, I've learned so much and I want to know more. So <laughs> I so I, I do this for fun, because of course I do. Um one of my games, uh it was triggered by a question of 
what about an arboreal squid? So I sat down and think, thought, like, okay, there, there is an arboreal squid. How does that work? Why would that work? So, okay, you need to climb, and you need to be able to catch things easily. And there's trees. Okay. So why would you need to be able to catch? So clearly, something moves fast in, in this. Maybe it's like Terrifying. a bird analog that you're snatching out of the air. But you don't need to have like eight tentacles to do that. You know what you really need eight tentacles to? Uh, to if the trees are like willow trees and they move around in strong winds and then they fling you. So you get effectively like sugar glider meets squid cuttlefish that go flying between trees being flung by strong winds. I am slightly afraid of squids and the the idea of this, I do not like. <laughs> They're called squidurals. They also have some rudimentary tool uh, abilities and they, uh, go, they get nuts from each of these trees. Uh, and you'll see them actually like taking a rock and breaking a nut with the tree and then cuttlefishing. Uh, so it's a cuttlefish squirrel. I I love how you could take, like, just having one idea, and then you start creating this ecosystem around it, and that's that's such a fun way to develop a weird setting, like a fantasy setting. I'm I'm so tired of fantasy settings where it's oh this is it's oh, it's a horse dog, it's a dog and a horse. Uh, <laughs> it's you know, and that's it. But the rest of our world is normal. It's like yep. the Pokemon problem. Like, it's a normal world, but Pokemon, but that doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's horrifying when you think about it, because every animal is Pokemon. Some of the plants are Pokemon, too. What are you eating? Well, it's obviously Pokemon. They eat Pokemon <laughs> like in canon. Like, Magikarp sushi? Like, okay. Poor Magikarp. Um, so... In my other game, my recent game, After the War, this is literally set on an alien planet. And one of the fun little things on there is um, all of the uh, humans and Martians and various aliens have brought in their own local species to this alien ecosystem. So I am certain that there's people in the chat going, oh my god, that's horrifying. Yes, that's the point. I wanted it to be a, uh, wow, this is working well, except it's not. Why, why is the water turning purple? Um, so in this setting, I said, okay, they never evolved. Vascularize, uh, vascularization. So veins and xylem and various things to pump water through. And they use um, calcium instead of lignin. So effectively, everything is coral. Oh, and they never determined, uh, got internal skeletons. So they're all bugs and moss and jellyfish. Uh, and they wind up having trees that are really spires of calcium carbonate, like giant corals, that go up. And then these mossy things are built along them. 
the reason why there's none on the bottom is there's little grazing creatures that come around and effectively eat all of the low-hanging moss. So that's how you have bone trees, cor uh, coral trees. And clearly there has to be things that walk around and little bugs that eat the things that are low. Um, you'll get uh, some of those coral trees make like pumice-like rafts. And then you get these floating raft islands uh, where they effectively it's floating coral uh, islands. Um, and uh, there's a, a, there's actually a beast called a warhog. And it's a mixture of a rhino and a beaver. It has a strong armored front plate. And it charges trees, knocks them over, and drags them away to build dams and den structures. <laughs> um, now, because now there's a whole bunch of humans and horse people on the planet, they find jeeps and go, yeah, I'm going to ram that. And that causes problems. That's the kind of thing I love. Um, and you could buy I, I after love the that war that's, that's very <laughs> Indie Press Revolution. <laughs> I love that it's very clear, like, yeah, of course a human's going to want to ram that. With... <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. I, I um, The game I'm working on currently has a lot to do with environmentalism, and I didn't even think about the idea of invasive species, so I'm, I've been inspired. Ooh, I love the art. I've I've been I've been listening to everything that's going on here, but in my mind I'm also imagining living beings, living creatures that we can't recognize as living creatures because we don't even understand like this is this, uh -huh. this is a this is a living creature and we don't understand like how this could be a life cycle. Um so uh I don't I don't know if anything's ever going to make it into a game but my my brain is bouncing all over that. I just I'm I'm intrigued by the idea. It, and I know that like science fiction games have you know and, and and fantasy games for that matter too have like you know bipedal um species and things things that we can identify with so it's easier for us to kind of put ourselves in their in their feet or in their shoes. Um but I find myself like you know the idea of designing a game where um like everything is so incredibly alien. Like you get to play like you know bipedal things that we can identify with, but then everything you encounter is so incredibly alien that it's not even immediately recognizable as a living thing, and it and it is its own interesting kind of threat that has to be dealt with. And this becomes a science fiction game where all the monsters are. Oh like, yeah, you you couldn't like it, there's 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 no analog for it on Earth. There's nothing in, on our planet that acts like that, that functions like that, where you just make something up completely. Because you can completely bend the rules. I mean, the, 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 the science nerds will say, well, you know, like that, like you can't have a, a life form that's, you know, you know carbon-based life form, right? You can't have a life form that's based off of this element or that element. Whatever, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, it's a science fiction um, game or story or whatever. But, but you could just do some bizarre things where you just have like, you know, it's a, it's a pool of liquid that never moves but it's actually it's actually alive and it slowly consumes the the dust which is the skin flaking off of other creatures that live on this planet it's highly acidic and it just eats that and it just slowly gets bigger over time and it is ultimately the end game of the world 
Like in time, this thing will cover the world. And it's alive. Ah, uh, classic Grey Goo. <laughs> um, I like it. I'm creeped out. But we I can't. <laughs> but, but we can't identify. But the astronauts show up and they just see this pool of acid, acidic liquid, and they can't identify it as being um, a living thing because our instruments that we use to detect and measure things don't detect and measure the thing that identifies it as living because it's a completely different type of life form. And then they bring you. A, they bring a sample back home to Earth. Study. So, on a related note, <laughs> and that's how note, it propagates. <laughs> on a very related note, alien and aliens. There's a real interesting thing there. So, alien and aliens clearly expresses that throughout the galaxy, there's other uh, mammalian equivalent creatures running around that probably have rib cages um, because that's how these things reproduce. Yep. Oh, great. So there's a bunch of other things that are being terrorized yeah, by and aliens. Prometheus and in, in the, in the other related movies also kind of posit the idea that it other invasive, like it, it doesn't necessarily ch- burst out of your chest. It bursts, bursts out of your back or it, you know, propagates inside yeah. your skin or within your eyeball or, you know, who knows wherever. <laughs> Hey, uh, the, um, the, the original, but it, yeah. Oh, just quick, quick sideline for people. Horror movie thing, Jess. Here, here we go. Um, in Alien, the initial intention for the life cycle, Alien shoots it down by introducing the queen and having a hive. But in Alien, the original intention was Alien gets on. Okay, uh, Kane gets face huggered from the egg. Chest burster comes out, grows to full size alien. Eventually, alien finds and kills people, and then coughs up, spits up, produce otherwise produces um, its own eggs. Like it's it's just it's like a single life cycle. There's no queen. There's no impregnation of the species. Like it's literally like this thing will like all it does is just live to eventually just create another egg that is like its own child. Um, and then they were you know the 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 thought was they would have like. Uh, Ripley, as she's running for the escape pod at the end, is going to come across um, Brett um, and Dallas having already been impregnated, even though no other eggs were brought on, brought on board. Like, this thing has, like, done it itself. Like, it's completely... What's uh, what's the... Uh, there are animals on Earth that do it. Uh... They basically have their own babies that... but But it usually has to do with... Have, uh, they, it's they, typically just a sexual reproduction or clonal reproduction. They can generate, um, yeah. They can generate. They can generate their own offspring. Autogenerative, I think. Yeah, but anyway, um, like that was that was going to be, and that, and and keep in mind, this was like you know 1979. So that this, if that had, if that was up on the screen, that would have blown people's minds. The idea, we because, have a biologist because now we have now we have the internet, and people have heard about all these other things, and you can you know you can Google up you know some of this kind of stuff. But there was a there were some plans to do some really weird stuff with the alien before people they they kind of rethought it and said this is just going to confuse people. And then when they did aliens, of course, they turned it into a queen with a hive and kind of changed everything we have a biologist in chat um who's telling us that it's parthenogenesis parthenogenesis and there are lizards that do that they will create their own offspring yeah and that would that would that would have just that would have blown people's minds in 1979 oh totally um so one of the other things that i have in one of my other games uh which is sig um effectively Mm -hmm. treants now they have three genders, 
male, female, and noble. So the nobles are the animate treants who wander around and they literally just drop seeds everywhere they walk. They drop male and female seeds. Then less animate, mostly static uh, forests of male and female treants pop up. They reproduce. And when they reproduce, they produce more noble treants. So it's effectively just this horde of forests that keep on spreading as the as Treebeard walks along, leaving forests in his wake. So and it's, and well, it's in kind, their wake. There, there's kind of a dual life. There's a dual life cycle that has to happen. Two steps to to each step. But it also means that you wind up having really interesting things, like the nobles are the messengers between forests. So if you actually look on a grand scheme, you actually see sort of a hub and spoke, like a network effect, as you see, here's the common travel routes for treants, and these lines of forest connecting these big forest sections. Like, yeah, that's, and all that is, is effectively, let's have some animate, animate trees and a third gender. Okay. <sighs> I I want to do so many fun things now. I, I'm leaving this call inspired to make a campaign about coconut crabs and white pine trees. And... I, I want to make a sci-fi game where you go to a planet and it's like, oh, it's barren. There's nothing, there's no life here. Oh, and you're actually um, surrounded. Aurora. You're surrounded by life. And the game is more, it's about surviving that, but also then like exploring and discovering and understanding and... Uh, oh, sorry, no, uh, it's w one of the Expanse ones. Uh, they go down, and it's like, oh, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. Yeah, there's actually a kind of microorganism that it isn't a parasite, but it grows well in eyes. It's just the right saline solution. Yeah, eye stuff, man. Uh, like, so well, people start we've going got, blind. We've got, because... eye, we've got eye stuff on this planet where there's, like, bugs that uh, you know, lay their eggs behind people's eyes, and yeah. <laughs> Anyway, sorry everybody. <laughs> we'll get away from that. Get away from that. Um, xenobiology, so much fun. Now, yeah. now I want. Now I want. I want. We're not even talking about parasites. Well, and and to combine it, yeah, to combine Those, it, that's combi the weird shit. To combine it all, now I want to design a game with its own brand new system that is all about xenobiology, and then I want to plan a campaign for it. And I'll just I'll just use everybody's advice from this episode. So you could have a, a hand-making game right where you're trying to build a hand and build monsters. And yeah. by monsters, let's, let's, I just mean creatures. I mean life forms. I mean xenobiological forms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming in and, uh, and speaking with us about this and, and giving us all these fun things to, to chew on. Thank you. All, all these great nightmares to have tonight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Nightmare time. But hey, seriously, that radiotrophic fungus is super interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, I love the idea, like all the cool, like biological spaceships that appear in sci-fi. Um, I think that's really fun. They Netty found the stuff in the reactor at Chernobyl. I was going to ask if they were going to put it in Chernobyl, but I, apparently no, no, it, 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 it evolved there. 
our planet's weird. You don't need to make any fantasy games. Just go based on our planet. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Jason, where where should people find you on online? All right. Uh, so most of the time, you can find me at Genesis of Legend on Twitter. You can find me at my website. Uh, genesisoflegend.com and you can also drop me a line at uh, jason at genesisoflegend.com and I will be happy to respond to any questions about xenobiology and alien arboreal squid (laughs) awesome my my internet is deciding to freak out on me here at the end of the call I'm switching between yellow and red but um, you can find me online at at josca again thank you jason for joining us I'm Craig. Um, yeah, and you can find me at NerdBurgerCraig on Twitter and NerdBurgerGames.com. Awesome. Thank you guys so, so much for joining us. I am so excited for our stream next week as well. That, or two weeks from now, not next week. Yeah, excellent. And thank you again, Jason, too. Um, thank you. Hey, everybody. That was an episode. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.